Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor Guadalupe Basio, who has a double appointment in psychology and Chicana Chicano Latina Latino studies. Her research explores disparities in alcohol and drug use among young people of ethnic minorities. Welcome, Lupe, and thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Uh, you're both a clinical psychologist and a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, which came first, or have they always gone hand in hand? They have always gone gone uh, hand in hand. Um, although I did get into clinical psychology um, with the intention to practice. Mm-hmm. So I actually wanted to be a therapist. And my dream was to be a counselor in a college setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to get into graduate school, I pursued various uh, experiences, uh, including research experience. That is just part of the, the the picture if you want to get a PhD. And once I started getting more and more into that experience, into research, it just kind of led me down a very different path. Uh, and I ended up in a in a very 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 different place than I thought I was gonna end up at. And what made you? What was that pivot or that turning point where okay, I don't think therapy is gonna be my career goal. What what switched that research That's light on interesting. you? That's um, interesting. I think part of it is that the kinds of things that I was interested in helping people with, uh, mainly mental health, just sort of in general, and also issues related to uh, first generation college students. I was a first generation college student, and I felt when I was an undergrad that some of the services that were available to to me uh, were not necessarily what I now know as culturally competent. At the time, it felt just a little off. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to 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 help with those issues. Um, and part of helping with those issues is understanding what those issues are. And part of understanding what those issues are turned into realizing that the answers that I was looking for did not exist in the ways in which I needed them at the time. So then that turned into research, trying mm-hmm. to find those answers. And so um, uh, that is part of the reason that I pursued uh, pl- clinical psychology as opposed to another field where I could have gone uh, just in the research arena. So for example, I could have gone into educational psychology or social psychology and actually considered social psychology quite a bit um, because that would have allowed me to study similar similar issues that I'm studying now, but I wanted to always have the opportunity to practice. And I, uh, even as an undergrad, saw the importance of making sure that my research was grounded in real issues and issues that could, issues of application. Mm-hmm. And so clinical psychology was a degree that allowed me to uh, combine those two and continue to allow, allow me to combine those two. Um, let's... Uh trace back your interest in the psychology period. Uh, where does where does that begin? That's a good question. Um, I think in general, I was always 
interested in psychology, but I also was interested, especially in um, an undergraduate, as an undergraduate, I was interested in political science and biology and chemistry. I considered going to medical school. I was taking classes in literature and all, I was all over the place. Um, and everything seemed interesting to me. So I pursued all kinds of different things. I almost majored in chemistry. I think I was short one course because I actually studied abroad. And then when I came back, I didn't get back into that rotation. But, you know, I was that kid. I did a clock in OCHEM, uh, taking OCHEM just for interest. Uh, <laughs> and so um, uh, I... I had a conversation with myself when I started. I didn't declare my, so let's backtrack. I didn't declare my major, my majors actually, until the last possible minute, which was uh, the fall of my um, third year. Mm -hmm. And that quarter, I went to um, UCSD as an undergrad. That quarter, I was studying abroad in Santiago de Chile. Um, and I, what I did before I left was kind of take a whole bunch of informational packets on all kinds of different careers related to the fields that I just described. And so I sat with myself, I still remember vividly this day, with a whole bunch of data on all of these different uh, fields, um, what each career, what, she, what each postgraduate uh, uh, degree would allow me to do, what I needed to get into those programs, as well as uh, what I would be able to, to, um, to make in terms of money, because I am a first-generation college student. As a first-generation college student, I wasn't just worried about how I was going to support myself, but I also needed to think about how to plan for my parents and how I was going to support my parents um, and how I was going to pay for all the the uh, the loans, the student loans that I'm still paying for. And so uh, the economic piece was also mm -hmm. very much part of the picture. Mm -hmm. um, and so based on kind of a... Uh, uh, data-driven approach, if you will. <laughs> I kind of landed as what the optimal path would be for me, what kind of uh, career I want to have, how many years of schooling I was able, I wanted to, 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 um, to take, like how long that was going to take me. And then in, at, uh, in the end, you know, the payoff. So I knew that I was signing up for um, six to eight years of schooling before getting a job in the field that I was going into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned majors. So which one were, the, were those majors? Yeah. So when I, uh, since I was uh, studying in, in, in a Spanish speaking country, um, if you're going to go to Santiago de Chile, you better take classes in literature uh, in Spanish. And I took classes, uh, you know, if you're there, you better take a class on Neruda and mm -hmm. poetry. So um, because I took so many uh, classes in, in literature in Spanish, I double majored in Latin American literature and psychology. And actually that goes back to the first point. So I actually have a joint appointment. My appointment is in psychology and Chicano Chicano Latino Latino studies here oh. at the colleges. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, those uh, I find it even uh, until today, um, those two majors actually complement another uh, quite well. And both of them, you know, continue to inform the work that I do now. Yeah. You said you you chose uh, to do the kind of research you do because you wanted it to be um, to have some application mm -hmm. in the world. What what kind of motivation do you have behind your research? Uh, is it to inform public policy? Is it to support clinicians in their mm -hmm. work? What what is it that drives you? So ultimately, my my goal is to reduce disparities. 
right, to reduce health disparities. And part of the reason that I went into um, um, uh, mental health and substance use disorders, so the combination of both of those things, is because I saw the... I saw firsthand the effects of the disparities related to suffering those conditions. So, and part of that came uh, from uh, my experience as a, an immigrant. I'm a first generation immigrant. I, I came to this country when I was an adolescent. So I was in high school only a couple of years before I went off to college. Um, and I went from being part of a majority, right? This is just a, another, another girl, uh, to all of a sudden being uh, seen as uh, someone who was never going to go to college because I was a I was a, a Mexicana, right? And I didn't speak English uh, uh, very well when I arrived. Obviously, I didn't speak the language, right. um, and I had many uh, issues actually getting even information as to how to apply to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, my counselors were, would, uh, uh, you know, one of them sent me to get a job at McDonald's instead of pursuing a, a, a higher education. So all of these different issues, and I was like, wait, why am I oh, being treated this way? Uh, oh. Because, you know, you people, right, as a young uh, Mexicana, well, you're going to get pregnant soon, probably. And, you know, so not worth the investment. So all of a sudden, all of these different things uh, came associated with me just because I was uh, I was seen as part of a I didn't understand at the time because I was an adolescent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, in a historical context that I didn't understand as to why I was treated uh, that way. And yet um, I was able to persevere through that and go on to college. But I saw that some of my peers weren't able to do that. And so I just couldn't understand how some folks who, from my uh, point of view, had more um, perhaps uh, uh, advantages, like speaking the language, right, uh, weren't able to to have, uh, to transition on to, to college or to have you know, some what I would uh, consider upward mobility, what I what now we see as as upward mobility in terms of more positive outcomes. And so uh, when I was an undergrad, I was still kind of grappling as to why. Right. And so coming to terms with uh, and learning about uh, uh, all the histories of uh, of my peoples, um, you know, my grandpa is a bracero. So he uh, actually we have a, a long history in this country of going back and forth Um and uh, I was trying to understand that. So it, um, one of the first research projects that I got involved with, and uh, this was because I was part of the McNair program, and a McNair program is for first-generation college students to increase um, uh, uh, first-generation college students uh, uh, in uh, PhD programs. And so I was part of this program, and the first uh, project that I undertook as part of that was uh, looking at uh, alcohol use, by different ethnic minorities in adolescence. And it just so happens that uh, Sandy Brown, who's still to this day my mentor, and uh, she's one of the uh, pioneers in the field and one of the first women to uh, uh, really, um, uh, you know, reach the... Uh, a place in her, the, the the place in her career where she's at now. She's vice chancellor of research at UCSD. She opened the door to her laugh to me when I asked. Um, so she gave me this data, and part of that research was looking at this. And I uh, kind of was surprised to see that actually, um, I think minority adolescents drink less, and they're not Hispanic white peers. And so I was like, wait a minute, what? That is not the story that I was told. Uh, <laughs> that is not how I was treated either. Mm-hmm. So what is happening here? And so that was kind of the beginning of 
wait, so now let's take this a step further. Does it differ by whether you are a first generation immigrant, second generation immigrant? What is happening with this culture? How does culture change impact this? How do issues of discrimination and other um, uh, factors related to the social context impact all of these different things? Mm -hmm. And so part of what my research is trying to understand is the fact that even though we see lower rates of use in youth, the consequences of that use and the consequences of um, uh, suffering from mental health uh, issues are much greater than their counterparts. And so my research kind of tries to, one, understand why the, the whys, mm -hmm. and two, um, based on those whys, devise some interventions to mitigate those disparities. So that's a really... Yeah. Long answer yeah. to your question. No, no, Alex. that's that's great and actually kind of dovetails nicely into the questions that, that we had. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about researching that topic? Yeah, so um, I use methodologies that uh, try to get at different, uh, the different levels of um, eco-development. So uh, things that have to do with our, our ourselves personally, with the, the, the um, systems that uh, impact youth uh, primarily, like the school, family, uh, their peers. We also, I also look at um, how the greater context, the macro systems, like uh, the communities in which we develop also impact that. Uh, so I look at um, uh, predictors at different, at different areas of development. And I use different types of methodologies to do so. And what I mean by that is uh, use a combination of qualitative um, uh, approaches, so bringing in people and just asking them about their experiences um, in a semi-structured way. I also I, I also use uh, quantitative approaches um, that uh, that ask participant the combined participant self-report information um, and also um, uh, use a, a data from some cognitive tasks. So what I'm using is a biopsychosocial model. So I'm looking at uh, cognitive correlates of substance use in correlation with their environment, uh, with the contextual uh, predictors of that mm -hmm. uh, in a cultural um context that also looks at adolescence as uh, um, in, in, that acknowledges the fact that adolescents are in a developmental period in and of itself, mm -hmm. right? Adolescence is different than childhood and is different than adulthood, which uh, surprisingly enough, that is actually semi-new. Adolescents, uh, a lot mm -hmm. of the times, um, are either seen as just adults, but younger, mm -hmm. or as children, but older. And now we know, um, that, and we're trying to recognize that there are a developmental, um, that they're in a developmental period on their own. Um, some of your work has had to do with uh, alcohol prevention groups, mm -hmm. um, um, and you studied how the composition of those groups um, uh, affects their outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I noticed, for instance, one of the things you measure is ethnic diversity and ethnic congruence. I think we all know what ethnic diversity means, but I'm not sure we would know what ethnic congruence is. Yeah, so that the, uh, that research stems from my work as a postdoctorate fellow at UCSD. So um, to, to bring the story sort of full circle, um, I postdoced with Sandy Brown, who was the first person who allowed me to work in her lab as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. So when I first worked with her, I was also trained as a peer, um, as, a, as an uh, interventionist 
um, in what we call motivational interviewing. So I was actually going to high schools along with her intervention team to implement this intervention to reduce uh, risky drinking among adolescents. So that was part of my experience as an undergrad. Then I went off to graduate school, um, uh, finished internship, all of those things. And as postdoc, I came back. And at that at that point, our, um, uh, that intervention um, was being tested in three different cities in the country. It was being tested in Miami, in Portland, and Minneapolis. So uh, my job was to, now that I had the, 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 the tools, um, I was actually able to conduct some of those analysis. So one of the questions was, okay, we have this secondary intervention, which means that this is an intervention for adolescents who may have some experience drinking, but we're trying to pre prevent them from transitioning to more uh, risky use. Um, and it's an intervention that is not necessary. It doesn't target any one ethnic group in particular, right? So it's open to whomever wants to come. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the first questions that I was interested in, in looking at is whether, one, we actually attract students from all backgrounds or are we or is one specific group coming to, to the intervention more than others, mm -hmm. in which case then we have some problems. Right. So are we reflecting the school's populations? And the answer to that was that actually, yes, we were the, the, the ethnic uh, diversity and congruence of the, the groups uh, reflected um, that of the schools. And by congruence, what we mean is, so there, there are different ways to look, to look at diversity. You can say um, uh, that a group, so for example, a group of five is diverse if you have uh, people from five different backgrounds. Or if you have uh, three people from one background and one person from another background, another person from another background. What congruence means is looks at the, whether that person's identity is congruent with that of the context. So do I see myself reflected in this context, right? How many of my perceived ethnic group are present? And that is different than diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Diversity right. is like how many, right? The, uh, how many different kinds of people we have and congruence is, do I see myself reflected? Like critical mass. That's right, that's right. Yeah. It's related to critical mass. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was interesting to, to see whether those two predictors, those two different ways of looking at diversity may impact as to whether students returned or not to the group. Um, and it turned out that luckily, actually neither of those predict whether they return to the group or not, which in a sense, that's a good thing because it, it means that the folks who are returning, um, uh, we are assuming that is due to the intervention, not necessarily to the dynamics of the group. Um, and so we're not targeting one group more than others, and we're actually uh, uh, recruiting uh, uh, a number of folks from, from different backgrounds. And the, the um, the dynamics of the group is not impacting whether they return or not. Now, the, the question of, um, we also looked at group processes. So actually the, the research on group processes um, is just starting. There isn't a lot out there um, in terms of how do we, and by group processes, what I mean is the clinical, the clinical processes that happen in a group related to whatever it is that we're talking about. 
is um, the relationship between the the group and the interventionist a positive one? Is it perceived as a positive one? Are are people actually uh, you know reporting that uh, that they are um, covering the topic that we think that we're covering? So today we we think that we're covering stress, but do the students actually think that we are covering stress? <laughs> All of those kinds of these different processes um, is our our uh, folks who identify as men talking more than folks who identify as women. Um, all of those kinds of things um, uh, impact the group processes. And there are very, uh, there aren't that many sort of uh, quantitative and theoretical frameworks that allow us to understand those. So part of what I wanted to look, uh, look at in, in that project is whether those group processes uh, among the group, so how cohesive the group feel and how, their relationship to the interventionist, whether those impacted um, their satisfaction and whether they returned or not to the group. Um, it turned out that actually uh, uh, non-Hispanic Black adolescents felt more positively um, and Hispanic uh, uh, adolescents felt most, more positively positively than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And it turned out also we found that interventionists felt that the group uh, for some reason went better when um, the group was mostly, uh, where the when the majority of the group uh, were uh, students of color. So we don't necessarily, we don't have the data to necessarily parse out why that is, mm -hmm. um, but there seems to be a, a, a something that happens when we use motivational interviewing that, that uh, may be positive for folks who are uh, underserved. And this, um, this finding has been uh, replicated in other, it's consistent with other research that for some reason, uh, motivational interviewing uh, seems to be as good as, if not slightly better to use with uh, uh, folks of underserved communities uh, because of the ways in which it goes about eliciting change. It's not a top-down approach, but it's actually asking, okay, what motivates you to do what you need to do? And in that way, if you're asking, if you are doing a centered uh, a client-centered approach where you're asking the, the person what is important to them, then by default you are, so to a certain degree that serves to tailor the process to the person which takes into, into consideration their culture. Right? It's also validating, right? I mean, it's sort of saying, you know, I'm not judging what your motivations are. I'm just wanting to know how they, that you can explain them. Exactly, yeah. which is crucial for adolescents in general, right? We always say <laughs> when we're training interventionists, right? We say, okay, what's the fastest way to get an adolescent to do something? Right. To tell them not to do something. So we don't <laughs> go and tell them not to do anything. We're not there to judge them. Right. We're there yeah. to guide their change. And there seems to be for for um, um, adolescents of color there. Uh, it seems that it, it may seem that using this approach is also val validating their values, whatever it is that they come from and not predetermined by whomever the intervention is or even the packaged um, intervention is. Speaking of prevention um, and prevention programs, um, is there any difference between school-based prevention programs and more um, clinic-based ones? Yes. So, um, this, well, it, it, it depends, I guess, on how what the target is really. Mm -hmm. So the school-based programs tend to be uh, either primary or, or secondary intervention. So primary in that they, we want to um, get a, we want to stop students. So, for example, from using it all. 
mm-hmm. or secondary, which is for students who have some experience, but we want to stop them from continuing. Um, prevent uh, pr- uh, group uh, those kinds of programs who are um, that are available in clinical settings. A lot of the times are tertiary, so that may, those may be for for adolescents who already have are considered to have an alcohol use disorder, right? And mm-hmm. they may be at a higher risk than those that are school-based. That is not to say that there aren't um, group-based programs for those kinds of students uh, in uh, in the school setting, but generally that's kind of the, the, the difference. Uh, can you tell us about any particularly effective programs that you've seen? Um, so for, for schools or yeah, in general? Yeah, for schools, yeah. So there, are, there isn't one uh, answer mm-hmm. that we that we have up to this point. Um, I think there there are principle guiding principles that we can incorporate into um, um, whatever programs a school choose. Uh, from from my experience, it seems that programs that are implemented by folks who are not associated with the school sometimes. Um, go be- go better with the adolescents because the adolescent is not disclosing to a counselor or to a teacher uh, that they may or that they they may or may not be using. Yeah. Right. Um, and we have to remember that that um, alcohol and drug use in adolescence is is uh, is illegal as well. Right. And yeah. so there's a, there are a lot of uh, uh, sensitivity issues that come with that. So I think that whenever there can be a person that kind of um, is in charge of that. That's usually um, helpful. Um, there have been some classroom interventions that have been done, sort of in that way, that have shown some promise. So when we're doing classroom interventions, of course, um, we are targeting a higher number of folks, right? Um, but they may or may not meet the needs of everyone because you're not necessarily engaging in an active conversation. Um, and then there may be, and then there are the kinds of uh, uh, intervention programs that I've been part of that are school-based and are and and um, and target are meant for um, for students who already have some experience. So I don't think that necessarily some are better than the others. I think that it depends on. I, I honestly think that that uh, that in order for for us to really be able to to address this issue is we need interventions at all levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may need some school level interventions. Uh, we may need some uh, classroom level interventions, and we may need some uh, more targeted interventions for folks who may already have a. Uh, who may already have an alcohol or drug use um, issue. Um, Just from a practical standpoint, you mentioned um, parental interventions. Do you have any advice out of your work for parents (laughs) who are dealing with something like that right now? Oh, goodness. Uh, So I am asked that question Multiple times a year, <laughs> I um, uh, I have a, a community partner on Common Good who works. Uh, they're a community-based organization. They work with uh, um, underserved communities to you know in- increase um, uh, the kids' chances of going to college. And part of that is working with parents. And I actually do a parenting workshop. I do parenting workshops for them throughout the year. And one of the ones that we do is a transition to college and talking about you know uh, substance use in college and how to approach those issues and how to be supportive, but not interfere um, um, in ways that we might want to because we're letting our baby go to college, right? And the parents may not have had that experience, so they're afraid of what what, what the consequences may be. So I think for, for me, the the 
the answer sort of lies in, um, and I know this is going to sound cheesy, but it's going it's, it's to lie in the, in the quality of the relationship between the parent and the child, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have, if you work on a good foundation, whatever that may mean, getting to know their child, getting to know, you know, getting to know their values, what they think, you know, what they like, all of those different things. Having these conversations is a lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. Having those conversations about whether they're using or not or how much uh, uh, they're using, um, they, uh, they, it's less likely that uh, the relationship is going to suffer because it already has a strong foundation, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Um, we also, also um, alcohol and drug use is to a certain degree normative in adolescence and, and, and the college years. We, we know that. So to what degree is that experimentation? Um, to what degree is that, you know, just normative and part of, of, uh, of what the child, what the adolescent is doing, you know, that kind of depends on, on the parent and, and how they see that. But that is, uh, that is part of the story, right? All of, the, all of our surveys show that um, uh, by the time that students graduate high school, the vast majority of them um, have tried alcohol. And so instead of uh, preventing and, and to a certain degree stopping um, the, the possibility of a conversation, by having one stance, leaving that door open so that the child can come to you and tell you like, oh, you know, I this or that. I think that that's probably the best way to go. With that said, I don't have any I, I kill children yet. So, mm -hmm. you know, every parent has to make their own um, independent decision. Lupe, you've studied what's called the immigrant paradox. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, the immigrant paradox refers to the fact that many studies have shown that um, uh, U.S.-born adolescents, and this applies actually not only to Latinx folks, but also to other immigrant communities, U.S.-born um, adolescents um, uh, have worse outcomes than their immigrant counterparts. And so it's a paradox because that is not what we would expect. Mm -hmm. We would expect that uh, uh, folks who immigrate, who may not know the language, who uh, may encounter lots of stressful uh, barriers, may um, may have worse outcomes. We also expect, on the other hand, that if you're born in the U.S., you will have better opportunities, right? And so they might do better. But that is not necessarily what we see. Uh, now, that research did start uh, with looking at uh, um, mortality among uh, uh, Mexican origin folks. So uh, the research now uh, suggests that the immigrant paradox actually may not apply to, for example, folks of Puerto Rican descent. They're equally likely uh, having the, you know, they have equally the same outcomes related to substance use if they were raised in Puerto Rico in the mainland. And part of those reasons may be the fact Right, that the, the the relationships between the countries are um, different, and in fact, Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's important to when we look at the when we think of the immigrant paradox to know that it may not apply to everyone who's of uh, Latinx descent. Um, now, what we don't know, and one of the things that I'm really interested in, is uh, the following: a lot of the times we divide folks into whether they report that they're an immigrant or U.S. born. However, um, you know, Latinx folks have been in the U.S. for generations. So um, we, a lot of the lo uh, times, lump folks 
who are U.S. born and whose parents are U.S. born with folks who are U.S. born but whose parents are immigrant, right? And so this is the third generation. And we don't know much about how the third generation compares to the second and compares to the first. Um, we can think about, about the fact, right, that both first generation and second generation immigrants are raised by immigrant parents and the third generation isn't. So what is happening there? Now, that is an open question that I'm uh, really interested in pursuing and very few uh, very few studies have been have been done on that. Um, and one of the studies that we're about to start will uh, start to look at that question. There's a, um, an interesting um, aspect to that that I'm that that you have me curious about now, um, and that is um, other in other countries. Uh, I'm I happen to be familiar with France. The relationship between alcohol mm -hmm. and people is very different, mm -hmm. especially kids. I, you know, in France, you can send your seven-year-old to the market to pick up a bottle of wine, mm -hmm. and so there's no mystery about alcohol. There's it's it's not uh, the special forbidden fruit. I wonder if that could be involved in in the immigrant paradox. Um, just I just throwing that out. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I mean, the ways in which alcohol is viewed um, is different if you look at uh, different countries. So it, that that may be maybe part of it that the relationship in this country to alcohol and other drugs is very different. Um, you know, we have uh, you can legally start drinking here until you're 21, where else elsewhere you can drink at age 18. Um, uh, I mean, there are many pros to that, uh, mainly that your brain needs more time to develop, right? So, um, in fact, if we went by those bases, I believe that we would need to delay it until age 25, but we're not going <laughs> to. It's another episode. That's right. We're not going to go with that. Um, and as if anyone really does wait. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, we went through prohibition. Right. So and by we, I mean, the, the country went through that era as well. So uh, I think that that is that that may certainly be be part of it, that the relationship to alcohol is is uh, is different. Uh, it may also be that um, that for for um, that uh, we don't necessarily, so th this is another thing that people have thrown out there, is that it's not necessarily that the second generation is doing worse, but rather that the first generation is doing really well, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we also don't know, we don't have data to answer that question yet. Um, for that, we would need, you know, a transnational um, research, which would be really cool to do, so maybe one day. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that could that could definitely uh, be part of the case. And in fact, we know that our beliefs about alcohol very much impacts our behaviors. And but by that, what I mean is that if you're more likely to think that alcohol um, will make you the life of the party and will make you will give you all of these positive things, uh, you can test that in uh, uh, ten-year-olds. And and if they score higher on the po on the positive uh, expectant what we call positive expectancies, they're more likely to use later in life. Right. Yeah. So our cognitions and the ways in which we think about alcohol has a huge impact on our behaviors, uh, for sure. Um, and one of the one of the things that I I found in 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 one of my studies is that when it comes to those cognitions about alcohol. 
um, the second generation tends to think that uh, the negative effects of drinking, and by negative from the researcher's perspective, so perhaps the you know the um, the uh, feeling more relaxed, right? So uh, those those effects of alcohol are more positive, and that is actually a mediator a mediator between the immigrant generation and whether uh, uh, adolescents start drinking or not. So having a, a, a in a sense, uh, these beliefs do sort of um, play a role in that. Lupe, can you tell us how you how do you involve your students in your research, and can you tell us about um, El Centro Lab too? Absolutely, absolutely. So my students are my lab. Um, right now we have a team of ten students um, in the lab, so that changes throughout the year. Um, most of them are from Pomona, but they're also from other colleges. Uh, I think all of them are first-generation college students. Um, they are interested in the applications of science to solve um, um, human suffering. A lot of them are uh, very interested in working with uh, their respective communities in one, one way or, or another. And so the kinds of students that work with me need to uh, have uh, sort of those two, uh, a combination of those approaches. They need to be very committed to uh, doing um, good research with the community because we know that there's, you know, there's been uh, a lot of historical issues with uh, underserved communities where there's a lot of distrust um, with researchers. Mm -hmm. So they need, my students need to have that commitment to working um, in a respectful uh, and transactional manner with, with their communities. And they, at the same time, they need to be uh, very um, uh, cognizant of our, our research methodology and very respectful of the science, the science process. So, that is all to say that um, when we, when I come up with studies, actually they're all part of that process. When, um, so right now, for example, we are doing a large study on uh, Latinx college uh, students at the five C's. And I am interested in looking at all of the questions that we've been talking about, but some of us students are interested in uh, stress and eating, and someone else is, student in, in, is interested in language brokering, and someone else is interested in um, achievement. Right? Like how, what, get, uh, what gets you through college. And so when we designed this study, we actually included all of these different kinds of constructs so that each student can take uh, a piece of the study uh, to be their own uh, and they can continue to develop their interests. And that is the case with other studies as well. So, um, you know, we start with uh, my main questions and then they are really integral in the part of the development, the organization, the implementation, the um, the, the development of the, the instruments, the piloting of the data, the cleaning of the data, um, all under, under my um, supervision. And it's really fun. And are they all psychology majors? Are they all seniors? What's the uh, makeup of your lab? Right now, I have, I think, three seniors, uh, one junior, want to say four sophomores, and one first year, one freshman. Mm -hmm. So usually, uh, uh, that's usually what it looks like. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of them are psychology majors, but uh, some of them are, you know, I, I am into departments. So some of them are uh, Chicano st uh, Latino studies majors. Um, others are public policy analysis majors. I think I have a bio and anthro major, um, unless she changes her mind, which 
that might happen. That's <laughs> a song. Um, yeah, but that's that's kind of the the general makeup. Uh, in the past, uh, some of them go on to uh, um, do summer research with me through Spur. Um, and through that, um, you know, sometimes people from, from other places also join us over the summer. Um, you're also interested in health disparities among mm -hmm. day laborers. And mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I think the sort of the guiding thread throughout my research is that health disparities and looking at uh, different uh, different groups. So um, in graduate school, I had the, the fortune of uh, leading a survey of uh, day laborers to gather data so that that data could be used in an intervention uh, that was going to be designed for them. So when you're designing an intervention, you want to know what 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 are the major issues, right? And so part of my job was to design uh, design and collect and analyze uh, all of the data that was then used for that. And then I, I actually also helped with the uh, the tailoring of the intervention and the translation of all the measures. And so um, part of what I was looking at is. Um, alcohol use among day laborers. Um, day laborers in Southern California, particularly in LA. So we partnered uh, with uh, our, our community organizations that work with day laborers. Um, I spend a lot of time with them, uh, getting to know the community. And then we did various waves of data collection at you know five in the morning. I would uh, pick up my undergrads and then go at the beginning of their uh, uh, the start of the day while folks were waiting for work for the day. Um, and if they, um, if they got uh, a, a job, then they would leave. No, um, you know, no problem. Um, and we were able to sort of identify what are some of the issues that they were encountering at the time. And um, some of the things that we found was that, you know, that there's uh, quite a bit of drinking and sometimes uh, drug use, uh, sometimes uh, due to the fact that they're very lonely. Uh, a lot of a lot of these folks are men who um, are in the states on their own, um, and so a lot of them don't have permanent housing uh, because they're sending all their money back. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're a, a community that um, also is criminalized quite a bit, um, and they have no recourse uh, to defend themselves in any way, shape or form. So they have absolutely no protections. Um, and in fact, you know, sometimes they're uh, ostracized not only by, um, you know, police, but also by the same communities, uh, for whom they work sometimes by the same people for whom they work that, you know, they may be like, okay, I'm, I don't want to pay you and they can't do anything about it. Right. So all of those, uh, things are very important to identify. Um, and based on that research, we were able to then inform an intervention that was also based on motivational interviewing uh, principles that combined that with um, with an approach that included uh, um, uh, a caseworker approach. So also making sure that folks are uh, that we ch that people checked in on um, uh, on folks' ability to you know have food and shelter and all of those basic needs that sometimes uh, we don't think of when we work with other communities. Uh, my uh, part of my goal is to continue to do that research at some point, um, but I am in my third year here, so <laughs> one step at a time. <laughs> 
a bit. Um, a lot of your research uh, has to do with studying vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. Are there um, special considerations that you have to keep in mind when studying these groups? Absolutely. So one of the things that I share with my students and I share with them, and even in the classes that I teach, the class that I teach, um, you know, touch on these sensitive issues as well. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, sometimes when I give talks um, to the community, which I do quite often, um, you know, sometimes that invites folks coming in, sharing things with me. Um, as a clinical psychologist, I learned that you never want to open a, a can of worms that you can't close by the end of a session. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to ask somebody to tell me their uh, life story if um, if I'm not going to be able to be helpful in any way, shape or form. Um, so I, I respect that a lot and I respect people's um Uh, agency to choose if and when they disclose whatever they might want to disclose. So I try to be very upfront about that. When when we're doing research, I am there with my research hat on. So I explain what that is. Like Mm -hmm. this is this this is what we may ask you about. Uh, You are you are free to tell me or not share with us whatever you may or or may not want. So I want um, my participants uh, to feel like they have the power to 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 not share or share as they wish. uh, we also think about, you know, uh, how our practices may or may not uh, be appropriate for the community. Even if we're interested in a question, you got to start where are you, you know, should you know the answer to that? Are you entitled to knowing the answer to that? Um, and along with that, you know, if I'm doing research, I I try to always give back to that community so that it's a give and take, not just a take. And so since I arrived at Pomona, I have uh, worked with Uncommon Good, uh, uh, for example, and um, I am going to do a research project that that will involve them. But so far in these three years, I have not asked for anything. I I have done workshops for parents in English and Spanish at the same time on strength management. Sometimes somebody counsels and... I step in. I have worked with their seniors and their transition to college program. Um, I have worked uh, uh, with all of their parents. So picture over 100 parents doing this, you know, um, uh, stress management actually uh, here at Pomona. Um, I have worked with individual parents, you know, whose kids are going on to college. And part of this is building this relationship. So I, they are my partner and they're my equal. I am not there to sort of you know, dictate what what goes on or not. So in that case, in that way, I try to to again make sure that they're empowered to 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 speak for themselves um, and take uh, um, those uh, you know those considerations. Um, also, in our in the kinds of questions that I ask, I tr- I we don't ask stuff that um, that uh, may put them in a situation where again, we're not gonna be able to provide services for that, right? So for example, if someone has suffered a trauma, if you ask about a trauma um, and don't provide services, you may be re-traumatizing the person, right? And so um, the, the ways in which we ask the questions, we also try to, to do so in a way that, um, that is sensitive and is, that is not posing uh, any more than minimal risk uh, when engaging in that research. Um. Does your research feedback into your classroom uh, teaching? 
Yes, very much so. Very much so. So I teach, um, uh, since I have a joint appointment, I teach two classes that are uh, that are uh, cross-listed between psychology and Chicano, Chicano, Latino, Latina studies. And uh, a lot of the times I pull examples from my work for, for my um, experience of the Chicanx, uh, psychology of the Chicanx Latinx experience and my Latinx mental health um, uh, seminar. So sometimes we uh, actually... Uh, go over papers that I have, may have written, or I talk about studies that we might be doing. And they're also integrated in some of the stuff that my lab does. So for example, for my Latinx mental health seminar, um, they're evaluated in multiple ways. Uh, one of them is they actually have the opportunity to write a grant uh, for, you know, where they actually can submit it to an, uh, an organization if they want to, or they can develop a study as a dream goal, which, you know, they can do either one. But in addition to doing that, they, as a class, they have to do a, a class project. Um, and they've done several things throughout the year. So the first year that I taught the course, um, they did a, they decided to do a, an assessment of um, mental health services um, in Upland, Pomo uh, Pomona, and Claremont, where, um, you know, they compiled a list of places and then called and tried to assess what kind of uh, practices they use, uh, whether they take insurance, whether they speak in Spanish, whether they can, they're a comfortable, uh, they, whether they have the training to work with undoc and documented students, whether they have the training to work with um, uh, LGBTQ communities. Um, and that list uh, is also part of my lab and we've distributed to Uncommon Good, right, and beyond. Um, last year, they developed a workshop for um, uh, adolescents who were going to go, who are in, on their way to college, and they talked about, you know, substance use and mental health uh, um, issues. So uh, we are actually going to use that again this year. And so they're, you know, they, they go hand in hand and they feed off of one another for sure. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you double majored in Spanish literature and psychology. So and you studied abroad in the land of Pablo Neruda. That's right. Does does uh, literature uh, play a role in your academic life or just your personal life? I think probably both. You know, um, I I think another reason that I pursued literature was because I needed I needed a space where I could also continue to grow my understanding of my culture, and psychology was not giving me that at the time. And so, uh, you know, literature is a great way of uh, knowing the constructions of worlds that are very different from your own. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are reflective of different times. And so, um, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I continue to, 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 uh, to love uh, literature and, um, and, and very much, I think that's one way of kind of um, informing what I do. So for example, um, in one of my classes in, in uh, psychology of the Chicanx Latinx experience, we actually read a, a book um, uh, to kind of understand the experience uh, from a first sort of first account perspective. And that's uh, Julia Takes a Breath. And students have responded very positively. And actually, we uh, we actually had the privilege of bringing Gabi Rivera, who's the author, to campus two years ago which was also a great, you know, experience for the student. So I couldn't, yeah, very much. I think that it continues to kind of be part of what I, the ways in which I approach my work. Do you ever have any regrets about having chosen an academic life instead of hanging out your shingle as a, as a <laughs> practitioner? 
Sometimes I do wonder if I would be better able to provide for them, for my family if I had my own independent practice. However, I knew that. Uh, so to me, um, you know, when it comes down to it, I really aim to do things that are that I think are meaningful for myself. And if what I'm doing has no meaning, then I am miserable. And I learned that in graduate school because there were some things that I had to do that made me miserable, but I had to do them. And then there were some days where I'd be like, oh, this is really cool. Why is this cool? Because um, it was meaningful to me. And uh, what I do now, the job that I have is very meaningful to me. I knew that I wanted to to after trying all of this of different paths, um, you know, as, as a clinical psychologist, uh, the last year you do a clinical year where you all you're doing is you know, clinical work and writing a dissertation. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to be in a situation where I wanted to do 100% clinical work, 100% research, or 100% teaching. Um, I needed the combination of all three in order to have a a uh, meaningful life. So yeah. beyond just career, you know, a meaningful life. So I guess not. I don't. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Good like answer. That Good answer. Um, and where is your research taking you now? Uh, so next year um, is my fourth year here. So that means that I'm going to be in steel leave. I'm going to be in sabbatical. Um, so I'm very excited about uh, spending some time writing a lot of the papers that we have started. Uh, there are several things in the works. Uh, in fact, yesterday we just submitted, submitted a paper where one of my students is the first author of that. And based on some of the research that we did over the summer, not the summer, but the summer before. And so uh, part of that year is going to me uh, to be me also um, uh, uh, writing um, uh, a couple of grants. Um, there are uh, various projects that I want to take on. And then also, you know, I'm a consultant on the SAMHSA grant that we just got at Pomona College. And so um, a part of what we're going to do, what we have already started doing is that. Um, and uh, since I'm the consultant on alcohol uh, use um, in the grant, we are developing a, a, a a survey to try to figure out what's happening at the colleges. And that is that's part of that. So I will continue to be involved in um, trying to um, understand what are the issues at the five C's and primarily at Pomona. Um, I also do work with first generation college students. Uh, last year, we did a, a longitudinal uh, study of first generation college students, which we're following up this year. And we're I'm in the process of um, uh, both submitting that for publication, but also most importantly, putting together a report for first-generation college students here. Um, so I will follow, be following that up. Um, I also will be doing a study on understanding that immigrant paradox among the three uh, generations, so first, second, and third, where we're going to bring um, into the lab both parents and adolescents. And um, uh, also... Um, Eventually, in a couple of years, um, I would like to start a, an intervention. Um, so I would like to adapt the intervention that I have worked with for all these um, years to the college setting. Um, and so for that, I will be writing a, a, a grant to be able to support that work. So eventually we will bring that to the, to the colleges. That's great. On that note, we're going to wrap this up. Our thanks to Professor Guadalupe Basio for talking with us about health disparities among ethnic minorities. Thank you, Lupe. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lupe. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.